The sign by Swedish pop band Ace of Base is climbing the charts. I said that like a robot. <laughs> we are just days away from Arsidio Hall announcing that he's not going to continue his late night talk show, simply saying, it's time. And despite having been out for over six months, Mrs. Doubtfire made more money this weekend than our Topics premiere weekend. Today, we are going back to April 13th, 1994. Hey, y'all. Welcome to the Wayback Recap, a podcast that obsessively explores all things past. From our favorites in TV and film... To Streets of Rage, Patricia's favorite Sega game from the 90s. The side-scrolling beat-em-up video game centers on the efforts of several vigilantes trying to rid a fictional large American city from a crime syndicate that has corrupted its local government. Did Patricia like this game solely because she could play as Blaze Fielding, the long-limbed ass-kicking babe? Probably, but the soundtrack <laughs> is also amazing. Like, we cannot talk about the impact that Blaze Fielding had on me as a person. I want Blaze Fielding to be your uh, pseudonym for when you check into hotels and shit like oh that. Oh my gosh, yes, desperately I want, I want that. Blaze Fielding. That is such a fucked up name. The best part is she did this like stand up triple kick and it was my favorite move of all video game like history. I always think you should play as the lady looking character, but Blaze Agreed. is especially my favorite. So I know I've played Streets of Rage, but I feel like I was more of a double dragon kind of girl. Like I okay. played that way more and Battletoads okay. too. And even like... A, I'm sure the 90s is uh, the whole, like, side-scrolling, beat-em-up game type situation. I also mm -hmm. played the Simpsons game all the time. It was fantastic. the Ninja Turtle one as well. Yes. I also really loved the DuckTales game. I haven't found oh a way God. to shoehorn that in yet, but I really love the DuckTales video game. You couldn't find to shoe that horn, shoe that horn into our DuckTales episode? We had a lot to talk about DuckTales episode. Yeah, we did. We could revisit it, because I don't remember any of it. Uh, but something that the DuckTales, um, DuckTales video game and Streets of Rage both have in common is fantastic soundtracks. Like, if you're just doing something, go to YouTube, Streets of Rage soundtrack, you're welcome. You're going to have a good time. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Blaze Fielding. I'm Brandon, and we have finally found my co-host, who's been locked away uh, we finally uh, got the bail money to get her uh, out, ladies listen, and gentlemen. It's been, a, it's been a challenge. It's been a conflict. Thank you so much to everyone for being patient. I'm so glad to be back. So, y'all, it's been a long time. Um, I'm Brandon, if y'all still remember that. And I'm Patricia. Hi. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming back. <laughs> she says sheepishly as she's been missing for three months. As Where she says, embarrassed and pale, <laughs> gaunt, <laughs> emerging from her cave. Hello. So glad to be here. <laughs> I think it would be really fun to tell everybody like a really elaborate story that sounded impossible but was still true. I'm not going to do that because I'm not terribly creative, but I think like the more absurd an idea you, the listener, can think of... I like that even better. So whatever excuse you could think for a single white woman to disappear for three straight months, come back having accomplished absolutely nothing, I want to hear it. You guys go for it. 
she adopted a family of pit bulls. I wish. They, from her, I don't know what I'm talking about. My dog's an only dog. I was just talking to somebody about this last night, and they were like, if you found a dog, like, would you, would you adopt? Because I was talking about how I have a neighbor who just found a dog, and now it's her dog. And I'm like, oh, I love all animals. And if I found an animal in distress, I would bring it back to my home to help it feel better. But Bernadette is really an only pet. She's not looking for any other animals to be in this house. What if she falls in love with a, with whatever creature you bring in? I mean, that would be great. But also, does someone have additional income? Because <laughs> Bernie alone costs, like, a lot of money a month. Yeah. And there's three more of those at my house. Like, that's yeah, crazy. Four animals. Yeah, it is. It is wild. Uh, my dog is also an only dog, but she got a brother. <laughs> we may have jumped the gun on that. No, I'm kidding. I absolutely that's love That's not Rollo. true. She loves Rollo. They are definitely brother-sister, like, vibes going on between them. Because they love playing together. They cuddle and stuff like that. But you can tell when Rollo is on Ruby's last nerve. Because she'll just get... She'll, like, look at him for a second. A little too long. And they just lay back down she's like if only you were not here ruining this uh, <laughs> if only they love each other. you were not here i like it best when you send videos from their doggy daycare and ruby is trying to do her own thing and rollo's just like hey i'm here love you hey ruby hey ruby hey ruby i love you i love you i love you i mean think of it it's like having your little brother hanging out with you at school or mm -hmm. it's church exactly as... like that my little brother took Hurt, like a lot of pride in embarrassing me in front of my church friends. Really? Oh yeah. It's because of him that church all found out my childhood nickname, which then became my camp nickname. Like it became my nickname forever, and I did not want that ever. And that's all my little brother's fault. True. I mean, it's an adorable nickname, and I it's sorry that I not. called you that without it's your permission. You, oh, <laughs> you, Brandon will frequently call me Pat, and he's the only person <laughs> in my entire life who has ever called me Pat, and he just does it to be contrary, and personally, it's not even a dig to me, it's really a dig to my mom, so I don't even know why he's so mean against my mom, whose number one wish was for me not to be called Pat. <laughs> I know, I'm sorry, it's just funny to call you Pat because that is not your name and I think I call you Pat because someone else called you Pat one time and I laugh really hard at it and I just do it. I can't help it, Pat. No, it's like I think it has something to do with that guy from the cathedral who used to call me Trish and you were like, that's not Trish. your name. <laughs> and you're like, if I, we're just not calling you your name, then I'm going to call you Pat. <laughs> Trish. I'm not sure if that's why it is but I think that might be it. I forgot all about that shit. Trish? Actually, that's going to be my pseudonym for our check it out. <laughs> I'm going to look at my ID and be like, Blaze Fielding? Your name says his name. That's weird. <laughs> Your pseudonym cannot just be my name. <laughs> Are you sure? That's, I feel like that's so much easier for me to remember. No, that is not a pseudonym. That's just my name, and I'll be with you. <laughs> like, if you became solo famous, that's fine. Like, feel free to use it. But, like, when I'm okay. checking in next to you, it can't be like... <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, 
I might still do it, but I'm hearing you. I'm hearing you. I might still do it is a funny thing to say. As a nod to Mother's Day, today we discuss the film that per- that personifies a mother's love, Serial Mom, starring Kathleen Turner, Sam Watterson, Ricky Lake, and Matthew Lillard, directed and written by the icon himself, John Waters. Now, I am going to legit do a whole mini-episode for our Patreon, check out our Patreon page, where I do a full physical presentation of my personality pie charts and the like (laughs) pop culture icons that are responsible for said pie chart and please trust and believe that the john waters chunk of that pie chart is is like substantial like i love john waters movies i'm down i'm so excited to talk about this i love john waters i too love john waters do you remember your first ex- like exposure to John Waters? I, f- I mean, from memory, probably Crybaby. I think that would probably be yeah. the most. I know I definitely saw Pink Flamingos as like um, a high schooler. Cool. Um, what else is this? Hairspray. I saw that at some we, point. We'll get into yeah. it more and more. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, so this movie comes out in 1994. I was only 10 in 1994. So you were what seven, eight? Yeah. So we were for sure not... What I'm trying to say is, I didn't see any John Waters movies live. I 100% saw John Waters movies, like, weekday afternoons on Comedy Central in, like, 1997. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like that. And HBO. I think that's HBO, what, like, for sure. I feel like that's what Crybaby came on. For sure. So John Waters is famously from Baltimore, Maryland. And Baltimore is where all of his films are set. He even films in Baltimore, which is nice. Put your money where your mouth is. Wow. Um, I had an old job where I had to travel sometimes, and I would travel through Baltimore quasi, like, more times than once. Always had a great time in Baltimore. I think Baltimore might be a super cool place. I don't think I've ever been to Baltimore. No kidding. So on paper, John Waters and I have a ton in common. First of all, John Waters' mom named Patricia. My name is Patricia. Whoa. That's cool. <laughs> we grew up watching movies at the drive-in. Love the drive-in. Uh, John Waters <laughs> loves to read. I also love to read. My favorite John Waters quote is not from a movie. It's from an article that I read in Cosmo Magazine, roughly 1999, where he said, if you go home with someone and they don't have any books, don't fuck them. And I think that's really good advice. Yeah. It really is. I don't have books, so y'all don't come over here trying to fuck. That's not true. You have many display books that are beautiful in their display. I've read many of those books. See? There you go. You read. Also, like me, John Waters had a gay best friend that he loved to work with. In the mid-1960s, he met Glenn Milstead. And together, the teenagers celebrated counterculture and everything over the top. They loved it. When Glenn started performing in drag, John gave him the name Divine and introduced his best friend as... The most beautiful woman in the world. Almost. (laughs) At just 20 years old, John knew exactly what he wanted to do. Along with his acting troupe, the Dreamlanders, John began experimenting began exp- 
experimenting with short films like 1966 Roman Candle, Eat Your Makeup in 1968, and the Diane Linkletter story in 1969. I haven't seen any of these short films, but the internet told me that the Diane Linkletter story is actually like a really good short film. Like, it's still camp, ridiculous, John Waters aesthetic, but like, there's substance to it. Like, I get some critical acclaim, which I think is cool. Interesting. Divine was the star of John's early full-length movies. Get this, John Waters started making movies in 1969, which is much older than I, like... I feel like that makes sense. That's it? Yeah. I mean, I know I it like does. I feel like I've seen black and white John Waters movies, and I know that isn't, like, a really good, like, indicator of how old a movie or filmmaker sure, it is, but... Sure, That's... I remember seeing, like, a black and white John Waters film, and I was like, oh, this shit's old. He made... Mondo Trasho in 1969 and Multiple Maniacs in 1970, the latter of which attracted a lot of press attention to the group. In 1982, the group made Pink Flamingos, which was a hit on the U.S. midnight movie circuit, quickly becoming a cult favorite, and established both John Waters and Divine's fame in American counterculture. For sure. This is wild. I love Pink Flamingos. I have never seen Pink Flamingos. Oh, really? Really, I watched really. it when I was hooking up with a boy once in high school. Nice. That's a good choice. That was a cool boy. Yeah, yeah it was. We're still friends to this day. That's awesome. Yeah. So in the 80s, he made Polyester. Again, these are always with Divine, which is great. Then in 1988, he made Hairspray, about the unapologetically fat Tracy Turnblad finding fame and fighting racism via local afternoon dancing. <laughs> My yes, favorite. Yes, that is a movie. Divine wanted to star as both Tracy and her mom, Edna. And John <laughs> was like, okay. Like John, tried to, like, John tried to be on board, and they pitched it, and the studio was like, no, we're not going to do that. And so after they said no, John Waters was like, okay, then I want Ricky Lake. But Divine was mad, right? Because Divine wanted to play both roles. But then Divine met Ricky Lake, and she's fucking charming and adorable. And Divine like, can't hate you. You're adorable. So then Divine <laughs> got over it. <laughs> I do like Ricky Lake. Oh, the many days I used to watch the fucking Ricky Lake show. Oh, my God. Doing this whole show, I have been like, am I a huge fan of Ricky Lake's. Like, I'm about to mention banger after banger after banger for Ricky. I mean, when you think <laughs> like, she, was the, she was the third season host of Charm School, Flavor of Love Girls versus The Rock of Love Girls, and she was great. I bet she was really great. And we have already talked about my fondness she, for her co-starring Brendan Fraser with Shirley MacLaine, Mrs. Winterborn. Fantastic film. Oh my... <laughs> Patricia's a Ricky stan. <laughs> I think I am a huge, huge fan. There's nothing wrong with it. Like, I'm saying it loud and proud. Way to go, What's Ricky. What's your stand name? Like, the Lakers or something like that? that oh, it? my gosh. I hope that is it. Like, I don't really <laughs> like... I hope it's Lakers. You should you should pitch that to her. Uh, okay. Ricky Lake, call me. I feel like <laughs> we would get along. Uh, turns out Hairspray was a huge success. It tripled its budget, which is a great return for a movie, especially a cheap, like, independent movie like this. It was doing well in the box office, and critics liked it. Divine was especially getting a lot of attention for his turn as Edna. 
Sadly, just three weeks after Hairspray's premiere, while still doing press for the movie, Divine died in his sleep in Los Angeles. So John Walters was, of course, devastated by this news. Uh, at the funeral, he delivered the eulogy, and it was a giant, like, state funeral is what they called it in Baltimore. They had tons and tons of people were there. Uh, but John delivered the eulogy sitting next to Divine's mom, Frances, who was always really supportive of Divine. And I think that's super fucking cute that John was like, I'll take Frances. She can roll with wow. me today. I love that. That is really sweet. So Man. I need your memory on this, Brandon, and I'm springing this on you, and I'm sorry. It's okay. Divine had two bulldogs, French bulldogs, that were called Beatrix and Klaus. Isn't Beatrix and Klaus the bad guys from the Chipmunks Adventure movie? It, the great Chipmunk Adventure. The two humans who were chasing the chipmunks. Yeah, I know Klaus was definitely the man. Okay, uh, like but the Beatrix brother. is we're not sure about. Yeah, which okay. I still I don't understand why you don't have a sec- You know that you need to let Bernie adopt a dog and name that dog Beatrix. <laughs> Beatrix and Bernie. I just feel like. Yeah, it kind of writes itself. I remember the dog's name was Sophie off the top of my head. Oh, good job. They were uh, horrifying, I mean, by the way. They scared me so much when I was a kid. Wow, this movie came out in May twenty second, nineteen eighty seven. It's on the list. I love that it's- movie. I have it on DVD. It's Claudia. Claudia. Oh, I was going to say, if there was some weird, like, backdoor divine tribute inside the Great Chipmunk (laughs) Adventure, I would be really surprised. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But having two dogs and naming them Beatrix and Klaus is cute as shit. John's next film was Cry Baby, the drape culture musical starring Johnny Depp in one of his earliest roles. So to put it mildly, Cry Baby was a challenging project. First of all, the entire production was overrun with what John Waters called lovelies, (laughs) but were actually teenage girls trying to get on set and get closer to Johnny Depp. Like, they were breaking into trailers, they're hopping fences, they're bribing crew people to, like, get close to Johnny Depp. And John Walters is like, this is happening multiple times a day every single time we shoot. Which sounds brutal. Damn. That's wild and kind of scary. I don't like that. It is scary. Like, guys, no matter who you are, don't do, like, find another way to use your time up. Like, don't do that. You need to talk to somebody. (laughs) <laughs> this is a good time to tell you guys we are no longer sponsored by anyone but better help if you would like to no. oh my gosh better help listen talk to us uh, we would also like some sort of snack sponsorship Brandon and I were talking about snacks and we're trying to figure out a way to incorporate that into the show so if we got like a oh. snack gift box sponsor that'd be great dude we really do love snack gift boxes we love snacks uh, I love sampling things from other countries Same. or just wild and wacky flavors uh, additionally, Depp's co-star Amy Locaine was still in high school and had never really acted before. So when they started rehearsals and she had to kiss Johnny Depp, she straight up passed out. Whoa. <laughs> that's, that's all I gotta say to that. That's <laughs> wild. 
Bitch, you can't be passing out. Get up, Amy. Come on. Smack her around. <laughs> That's what they used to do in old-timey Hollywood, which isn't funny. Wake up. Get the smelling salts. Can we prop her up or something? Does anybody got any meth we could just give her real quick? She'll oh pop right up. This is not funny. R.I.P. Judy Garland. You I'm here, saying Rachel. it's going to be in our episode. We're going to do a Judy episode. It's going to be good. I'm sorry. I think we're going to do Judy for our next Dead Messy White People. Let us know if that's something you guys want to hear, because there's wild shit. Judy. Poor Judy. She had it hard, way. So we got passing out co-stars. We got people trying to break into the set. As if that wasn't all enough, one day, Suit showed up. And according to John... The feds raided the set and served Tracy with papers for trying to force her to return to L.A. to testify against the mob for distributing all her underage porn films. So John's talking about adult film star Tracy Lords, who appeared in several of John's films. Um, a lot to say about Tracy. <laughs> that could be a mini episode, too. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm going to keep my mouth shut on Tracy. Yeah, I'm not. After all that work, Crybaby bombed at the box office. Which is shocking, because please, Mr. Jailer, that whole number fucking slaps. Mama! Come on. My gay-ass love, please, Mr. Jailer. Because it's good! That shit bangs! Go, if you've never seen Crybaby, go YouTube. You don't need to watch the whole movie. Please, Mr. Jailer, you're going to have a great time. I will say that is probably like my fav- favorite musical number in that, followed by when they're in the car. I think they're like uh, racing. You ain't. Oh, my God. It's like a faster song. It's towards <laughs> yeah. the end. Anyways. I like it. I like all. I am trash. And A, love musicals. B, I love all these shitty songs in, in Crybaby. It's great. <laughs> So, like, the good news here is, by this time, we're in, you know, 1988, I think. Cable TV is everywhere now. And John's movies were super celebrated on cable TV. Like, Comedy Central was playing them. HBO was playing them. I saw these movies all the time. Like, I feel like Hairspray was on fucking rotation. Like, you could depend on watching Hairspray at 4 p.m. on Comedy Central. Oh, truly and honestly. Oh, shaboom, shaboom. <laughs> uh, what else song did I like on there? A Teenage Prayer. King Crybaby is the song I was thinking about. There King Crybaby is a honky-tonk song for sure. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's it's what's fun. funny about this is that, you know, whew, a lot to say about Johnny Depp. Um, It's funny to see him so young in Crybaby. Yeah. I was just going to say, like, he doesn't, he's not doing any of those frustrating things. Like, he's not doing Jack Sparrow. Like, he's actually, like, he's doing something else. He's really having a good time on Crybaby, I feel like. Check out the original Nightmare on Elm Street, dude. He's even younger than that. It's weird seeing him, like, that young. He's like a baby in that. It's wild. So, with this Is rebirth on Kentucky? K- I'm so sorry. Is Johnny Depp from Kentucky? Yes. yes. Owensboro. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think he lived there for a substantial amount. Like, he doesn't go to Owensboro for Christmas. Like, I don't know. But he lived in (laughs) Owensboro for some time. So with this rebirth on cable, John Waters got a lot of forward momentum. And he used that to make his next movie, Serial Mom. To play the title character, John had high aspirations and suggested several actresses. Ladies like Meryl Streep, 
Kathy Bates, and Glenn Close, which all would have been super great. I think Glenn Close would have been especially good. I would like to see that movie. I love Glenn Close in anything. I think Me too. Undervalued Glenn Close. You're fantastic. Bruh. Come on, Cruella. <laughs> um, I'm... <laughs> that, that pie chart gets more and more complicated. I love Glenn Close in Fatal Attraction. Like, Glenn Close in that movie is just... I will not be ignored, Daniel. Come on. Get out of here. She's amazing. I'm obsessed. I need to watch the new show. I wonder if it's I wonder if I'll like it or if it'll hurt my feelings. Uh I oh yeah. I it's on like one of the streaming services. Is it mm-hmm. Peacock or something? I don't know. One of them. Paramount yeah. Plus, one of the two. It's got Izzy Chapman who I like. So maybe I'll like it. We'll see. Let's check it out. They also have a true lies television series now. Did you know this? <laughs> No, I did not know that. Yeah. I was very curious. I was like, am I going to watch this? Because I love the movie True Lies. I also love that movie. It's fantastic. Young Elijah Dushku. Maybe the movie that saved Jamie Lee Curtis? Well, like really? I feel like I feel I don't know. I kind of feel like we weren't really talking about Jamie Lee and then True Lies came out and everybody was talking about Jamie Lee Curtis again. I don't know. Yeah. Different show. I mean, she, I feel like the eighties were <laughs> Her decade. For then, sure. I mean, shit. Jamie Lee is eternal. She just fucking won an Oscar. Shut up. Won an <laughs> Oscar. Straight up Oscar. So what I'm saying is, without true lies, we don't get everything everywhere all at once. That's my thesis statement. Whoa. Eventually, John Waters got the script to Kathleen Turner. Now, by 1994, Kathleen Turner was a Hollywood A-list actress. The army brat had gotten her start on the stage, performing in a bunch of plays through the 70s, but it was her turn as Maddie in Body Heat in 1981 that shot her straight to the top. Brandon, have you seen Body Heat? No, but you have... One, I think I remember seeing it on, like, uh, you know, when you had a rental uh, cassette and you would get, like, the previews of movies and oh, shit for like sure. that. I've seen it on that. And I think you have seen it and love it. So here's the thing. I'm a, I mean, I'm not, I've always been sexually open-minded. So even as a kid, I was like, oh, this movie has a graphic sex scene in it. I want to see it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so like, Thank you even, for opening up. I mean, sorry if that's a lot of information for people, but what I'm saying is on, even on cable, like where parts were taken out and stuff, I was still like, oh, this would be great. <laughs> So there's a little bit about slide me. Sue another margarita so I can <laughs> finish this last 45 minutes. Oh, girl, Sue is not home. I am the only person in the house for some reason. It's 2 p.m. on an like a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> Kathleen spent the 80s making hit after hit. She had three very successful films with Michael Douglas and Danny DeVito, starting with Romancing the Stone, then Jewel of the Nile, and my personal favorite, War of the Roses. These movies made a fuck ton of money. And earned Kathleen Turner a Golden Globe. People fucking love these movies. Really? I have never seen any of those. Like, I know of those movies. Like, mm-hmm. I know they are... I've just never seen them. Yeah, I think Romancing the Stone and Jewel of the Nile are like Indiana Jones-style adventure movies centered mm-hmm, around mm-hmm. opposite characters finding love. But War, War of the Roses is my favorite. So, to explain that, I'm not sure if on this podcast we have ever talked shit about Michael Douglas, 
<laughs> so just in case we haven't, I'm going to take a moment to talk some shit about Michael Douglas. So these movies, by this time, Michael Douglas is super powerful. He's so powerful, he's getting executive producer credit on these movies and writing credit. Okay, I'm rolling my Whoa. eyes a little bit. Upon the success of these movies, Michael Douglas took every opportunity he could to talk shit about Kathleen Turner. He called her abrasive. Whoa. He called her hard to work with. All the things actions get called. This is based on no facts. There's no story of Kathleen doing this. Despite that, this reputation has plagued Kathleen Turner through her entire career. And it's literally because one time Kathleen Turner was like, that joke is not funny, Michael. We need to rework it. And like, that's what made her difficult to work with. And I think that's stupid bullshit. Wow. It is, because I really like Kathleen Turner in a lot of things. I do too. And saying a joke ain't funny is not a, is not a punishable crime. Repitch the joke. Try something else. Don't be a titty baby. So anyway. Titty baby. So the reason why I love War of the Roses is because it literally is two hours of Kathleen Turner beating the shit out of Michael Douglas. And it's almost like cathartic. Like, <laughs> you almost feel better after watching War. Like, you kind of feel like you've beaten the shit out of Michael Douglas. And it's a really pleasant movie watching experience. Also, Danny DeVito's there, which is great. <laughs> Danny DeVito is there, yes. He's in all of these movies. They're a trio, really. Like, Danny DeVito is the critical piece of this puzzle is why these movies work. All the time. <laughs> but especially in these movies. In 1986, Kathleen Turner made Peggy Sue Got Married, co-star Nicolas Cage, which earned several awards and got Kathleen Turner her only Academy Award nomination, which I did not know. Wow. I think Peggy Sue Got Married is a downer movie, and it makes me sad. Even when I was a kid, the movie would make me sad when I watched it. But people really liked it. I'm just... I didn't know about the nomination until I was preparing for this episode. Man, Nick Cage was in a lot of movies, too, in the 80s. Bernie and Peggy Sue. <laughs> That's cute. My mom, Sue, would be mad. <laughs> She'd be like, please don't name your dog <laughs> Peggy Sue. I don't like it. Don't do like, that. I'd be like, uh, it's Peggy Sue, not Sue Sue. Okay. Wow, mom. Like, way to make totally everything about yourself, you stupid jerk. <laughs> <laughs> Calling a dog Peg, Peg and Bernie are going to sound like a retired couple. <laughs> I would just be constantly doing an Al Bundy impression, like saying Peg. In 1988, Kathleen Turner was the voice of Jessica Rabbit in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, the most successful Dude. film of 1988. Bro. The 90, right? I'm so I am so stupid. I did not know that was Kathleen Turner until Are I just thought it was Jessica Rabbit. Are you kidding No, that's Kathleen Turner. Uncredited. But that's Kathleen Turner. Oh, my God. Uh, point of order, it is not Kathleen Turner singing. Just for the record, that's a woman named Amy Irvin. But just, you know. But Kathleen Turner is the voice of Jessica Rabbit. Damn, she was born to play that role. Yeah, she was. The 90s saw a slowdown for Kathleen. But I would like to make note of another one of my personal favorites, 1990s Undercover Blues, co-starring peak hotness Dennis Quaid. <laughs> like Peak hotness. Peak hotness Dennis Quaid. He and Kathleen are like spies that just had a baby. So it's like spies, families, fighting crime. <laughs> it's really not. It's probably not good. But oh my gosh, I loved I've it as a kid. Movie. Oh, I'm sure you have. Yeah. It was directed by Herbert Ross. who's the same guy who directed Steel Magnolias. 
Oh, sweet. So it's 1993, and John Waters sends Kathleen the script. So she starts to read it, and she gets to the point where Beverly pulls a teenager's liver out. And she was like, no, 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 no. this is not for me. Closed the script, went and did something else. Yeah. <laughs> but it kind of sticks with her. Like, she couldn't not think about it, so she went to go read the script some more. And then she got to the point where Beverly crushes a person with a window AC unit. And she's like, no, I'm done. I can't do this. Absolutely not. But she couldn't stop thinking about it. Eventually, her husband convinced her to finish the script. She called John Waters and she's like, "Are we? is this for real? Like, is this a real movie you're going to make? And John Waters is like, let me come talk to you. Four hours later, John showed up at Kathleen Turner's house and they talked the movie out. And she said she'd do it. While discussing his films, John Waters said, Every one of my movies is a satire of a genre. Hairspray was a dance movie. Crybaby was a musical. Siri Mom was true crime. Reading that quote, I was like, have I been celebrating true crime since I'm six years old? Like, is that for real? <laughs> and the answer is yes. Because <laughs> this is definitely like a true crime movie. Yeah, girl, you used to watch Unsolved Mysteries, so yes. Unsolved Mysteries, we're going to talk about Law & Order in a minute. It's out of control. I love true crime. I've always loved true crime. We love to see it. So everyone told Kathleen Turner not to do it. Her agents, her friends, everyone. But with Kathleen Turner on board, the rest of the movie got greenlit and made quickly. Kathleen Turner convinced veteran stage actor Sam Watterson to come on as Beverly's clueless dentist husband, Eugene. Today, Sam is probably best known as District Attorney Jack McCoy, Jack McCoy on Law & Order, a role he held for 16 years. Wow. I ain't never had a job for 16 years. Me either. Uh, Sam, by far, had the hardest time with the subject matter in the movie. He was really worried that they were glorifying violence and serial killers, but Kathleen Turner was usually able to talk him down. You know, he was just a sweet guy, so some of the stuff was hard on him, which is adorable. No, I mean, I get it. Like, now that I listen to true crime and stuff like that, I sh stuff like that, how flippant, <laughs> but it, it is a thin line between, like, exploiting people who have gone 100%. through divorce you know, and their families versus, like, Wanting to help in 100%. some way. And, like, people's privacy, things like that. And I'm saying that as a person who consumes a ton of true crime stuff. Like, you do have to be really careful about it. Um, I have a person in my life who is really... I am dead inside. And so I can talk about heavy topics with ease, which is weird. and gr Which is not what I want, but it's how I am as a person. Sometimes I forget that not everybody is that way. And I have a really sweet friend who can be like, hey, can we put a pin in this? <laughs> I would like yeah. to not hear any more about this. I'm like, yes, <laughs> of course. I'm, I'm gonna so cry sorry. for several hours later because you're... <laughs> <laughs> like, I need to immediately put on a Disney musical because you made me really upset. So if you could please leave my home, <laughs> that would be great. I would kick you out, too, but for other reasons. I mean, that's really fair enough. Yeah. The rest of the family, daughter Misty, was played by John Waters' favorite, Ricky Lake, yes. and a pre-scream Matthew Lillard as the teenage son, Chip. I want us to do another set of mini-somethings on Patreon, Brandon, where we just, like, talk about one person. I'm thinking of, like, of undervalued people. 
like actors who show up who like aren't the top listed but make everything better because they're in it and yeah. one of those people is matthew lillard i agree he's the right? voice of scooby-doo now since casey casey yeah. died yeah he is i mean and re- live action scooby-doo i mean yeah matthew lillard has put in his dues did you ever watch um what was that series with uh, retta and christina from good madman it wasn't called good girls I think it was called Good Girls. Okay, there it is. Yes, great series. I watched it. Unfortunately, they canceled it. I wish they had. I've heard enough. that. I follow Reddit on, on Instagram. Do you? I'm gonna. Oh yeah. Give her a follow. She has fun content. <laughs> uh, she's gotten her pool installed. I'm really excited for her. It's been a challenging <laughs> time. <laughs> You're funny. It was during filming that Kathleen was finally correctly diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. For years, she had experienced intense pain and fevers. This pain would eventually put her in a wheelchair and would basically her neck, she couldn't move her neck. Uh, This illness and treatment greatly impacted Kathleen's acting career. Whoa. Never mind that she could barely move, but the medication and treatment she was on caused swelling and weight gain. Which led to Kathleen being lampooned by the press. People were ruthless about Kathleen Turner. Like, shame on you. I'm saying shame on you. How dare you? Yeah. That's fucked up. You guys are awful. The paparazzi was shitty. That's what I'm saying, man. Yeah, is is, is correct. Like, they basically pushed her into early retirement. Luckily, her illness went into remission, and she was able to take, like, in the 2000, like, 2008-ish, uh, she was able to take on voice acting roles and some on-camera work, but she had definitely lost her A-list status. Despite that, all this time, Kathleen has been actively working for Planned Parenthood, and has since she was, like, 19 years old. She's working for Planned Parenthood today. I love that about Kathleen Turner. Yeah, get it, or get it Planned Parenthood and get it Kathleen Turner. That's wild. Get it anybody who devotes themselves to a charity. Way to go. Seriously. That's impressive. So John finished cutting Serial Mom and he showed it to the studio. Uh, the studio was not into it. <laughs> they did not like it. They did not think it was funny. Uh, they thought it was going to be like a horror movie and that's not really what it was. So they tried to shelf it. They were like, we're not going to distribute this. And John Waters threatened to take him to court. It was in his contract. Like, they would be in violation of contract if they did that. And they would have had to pay John Waters a fuck ton of money. So, ultimately, they released the movie. Uh, But, like, they released it in the spring. It was the worst possible time to release it. And the movie bombed. Like, the budget was $13 And it only made, like, $7 at the box office. It did very poorly. Wow, really? Yeah. Yeah. But I that's wild because I feel like I watch Serial Mom a lot. I mean, for sure. Like Serial Mom is the one I probably watched closest to its premiere. Like I remember when Serial Mom came out is what I'm trying to say. Like I have memories of Serial Mom. I remember like the cardboard cutouts in the uh, video store for it. Exactly. Because already as a young person, I was like, oh, I love Kathleen Turner. (laughs) I definitely want to see it. Dude, I wish we could have met at a video store. We, once. we probably magic. did. We were probably going for the same video of Care Bears or some shit. <laughs> we're both reaching for the Great Chipmunk Adventure. <laughs> yeah. 
back off, bitch. No, I'm kidding. Despite this, so I think it had a couple things. Like, by 1994, John Waters had a fan base. Like, a pretty loyal fan base. So even if they, if the box office was low, it got... The cable TV picked it up right away. And people loved it on TV. Cable channels love to air it on Mother's Day, which tickles John Waters to no end. Yeah. <laughs> so for John, Serial Mom was his big, biggest success. He got a huge paycheck. He got to make the exact movie he wanted. And his fans liked it. So John kind of walked away from Serial Mom, like, dusting off his hands. Like, that's that. Go me. And I love that. Man. Kathleen Turner says, this is the movie fans bring up the most. And to I this day, right? Like, I mean, I have so much to say to you, Kathleen Turner. You let me know when you want to talk. But I was, I'll def I'm definitely bringing up Serial Mom quick. <laughs> so John Waters, as of like pretty recently, like last fall, has been hinting about a secondary Serial Mom project. Where maybe not a reboot, but maybe like a what are they doing now, a TV show. Like, there's hints about this all over. So, if there's someone listening who has any impact on whether or not we get more Serial Mom content, do it. We love Serial Mom. Yeah, I'd consume that. Right? Give me content. <laughs> In 2017, there was a meme floating around the internet that eventually made its way to Kathleen Turner. She described it saying... Somebody photoshopped in Beverly Sutfin right behind Donald Trump with a leg of lamb over her head. He probably doesn't rewind tapes either. So it is with a mother's love in her heart that we watch some TV. Emma Togger. <laughs> Togger. <laughs> I got my boss to cackle with that today for some reason. I don't know why. Because uh, I was like, what's her name? Tall girl. Beverly. Beverly. Because <laughs> that's fucking funny. Because it's funny. Because A, it's callback to a funny moment. B, it's you exposing yourself that you did not remember her name. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Because truth be told, I do not remember people's names. Me Your boss either, sounds cool. It's always yeah, nice fun. when a person gets a League of Their Own reference. What's your name? Tall Girl. <laughs> Hope Beverly's doing all right. Me too. Beverly. I Such a, so we we're talking about Bridget Fonda, which immediately makes me think of um single white female, which has Jennifer Jason Lee in it, and you and I offline were talking about Jennifer Jason Lee. Super yeah, racist. We were. I also reference single white female a lot. Yeah, it's good. Because <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm slowly taking over my boss's life. I'm like, look, I'm not trying to do that. Listen, but. once you get the exact same haircut, it's over. Bro, and that was intentional. No, I'm just kidding. It's kind of harder to fire somebody who looks just like you. So hard. It's a psychological mind game I'm playing. Long game. Smart. Long game. Long Kong. Yeah, really smart. Really smart. Beverly. Okay, so the name Beverly. Uh-huh. I want it to have a resurgence. Ooh, tell me more. I just feel like, you know how, like, Every so often years, like, old, older names are, what? like, having a rebirth with, like, people who have kids. Like, the name, like, Hazel sure. or stuff like that. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, old 100%. lady names. I feel like there are a couple of names that are dying out that we'll never see. Like, Emma is an old lady name. Um, that and people really, love it. There wasn't an Emma in the 80s. No, Maybe not there a was. single Emma in my class. Emma Button was there. <laughs> but 
But that was English. I mean, it's an English name. But I was thinking like um, Beverly. I feel like that. Like where are the Beverlys at? Where are the little Bevs? Where are the little Barb's? We need some Barbaras. I think, I think Beverly A was a little tainted by today's topic, and but I do think Bev. I love the nickname Bev. Like, hey Bev, I, can you come over here? Let, let me get you for a second, Bev. You like that um, I segue I did? You can cut that out. I like but it. like Beverly, it does also sound really be- beautiful to me. Like Beverly, mm-hmm. I'm sure there are some Everlys out there or something oh, along I'm those sure. lines. I'm sure. I'm sure. Everly's kind of pretty too. I've never met an Everly, but I hope I do. That's a nice name. So because existence is pain, Serial Mom is not on any streaming services that I have access to. So I bought it digitally on Amazon. The reason why that's funny is because this looks like it's straight up like a DVD rip. Like at the beginning of this digital streaming even starts with the DVD. You can't copyright this. Like, uh, yeah, I noticed that too. And I was like, wow, this, they straight up were like, somebody had a DVD of Serial Mom, and they just uploaded it to the Amazon server. It really made me laugh. Great side hustle, if you ask me. <laughs> well, first of all, that copyright announcement told me it's illegal, so don't do that. You're going to get in big trouble. Oh, yeah. Um, so, trigger warning might be the wrong words, but... This is John Waters material. The topic is subversive and is like purposely ignorant at times. Also, this movie is 30 years old, so there is some ignorant some ignorant oh, what's the, what am I trying to say? Like, we, there's jokes and stuff that we wouldn't make anymore. So that's just something to know about this movie. Yeah. As we mentioned earlier, this is a true crime spoof. So right at the beginning, we get the ominous true crime black card with white font warning us. The film is a true story. The screenplay is based on court testimony, sworn declarations, and hundreds of interviews conducted by the filmmakers. Some of the innocent characters' names have been changed in the interest of the larger truth. No one involved in the crimes received any form of financial compensation. So right off the top, this is not a true story. That's just John Waters being funny. (laughs) As I watched this movie for the podcast, I did look for and find a lot of true crime Easter eggs that made me laugh every single time. So not only do we have this like true crime trope of the black, you know, title card words telling us things. In the in the explanation, there's this bit about compensation When this movie was made, like the 80s, all of the serial killers from the 70s spent all of the 80s trying to make money, trying to make as much money as they could before their punishments were served. So like John Wayne Gacy, his pogo paintings go for thousands and thousands of dollars. Just recently, one of John Wayne Gacy's paintings, it was of Jesus Christ playing baseball against the seven dwarves, but the seven dwarves were all dressed as Chicago Cubs. Nice. That painting went for $19,000 at auction. Wow. Wow. You could just give me $19,000 and I can <laughs> shit on a plate for you and give it to you. But I guess. Be just as good. I mean, and it's, that, he's not the only example. Um, art done by Henry Lee Lucas and Richard Ramirez is also highly prized. 
in the late 80s, Jeffrey Dahmer got into a bidding war with Geraldo and Donahue for his story. Richard the Iceman Kuklinski had at this time, well, maybe I think this is around the same time. It doesn't matter. He was a hitman. He killed dozens and dozens of people. He had just signed a three-episode docuseries with HBO, The Iceman Confessions, which has, like, gone on to be, like, true crime encyclopedia shit. Yeah, I've definitely so seen this that. Is, it's, the Richard Kuklinski story is wild. He's, it's wild. Anyway, this is all to say, eventually, in the late to mid-90s, they passed a law so that prisoners couldn't make money on their crimes anymore. So, like, any of that that $19,000 by John Wayne Gacy, that probably all went to, like, victim payout. Yeah, probably. I would think so. Hopefully. Unless it was already privately owned, which could be true, because this law didn't come into effect until a bit down the line. Who's to say? If you know more, let us know. Yeah, I don't. On screen, we see the picturesque suburb where the Sutphin family lives. Daddy Jean, Sister Misty, Brother Chip, and Mom Beverly, enjoying a classic TV family breakfast. Chip and Misty tease each other about about Misty's new beau, Carl. As the family talk about a newspaper story discussing the hillside strangler, Ken Bianchi, who was a sack of shit, for the record. The family talk while Beverly is is following a fly around the room, working to smash it. Just then, there is a knock at the door. Two detectives are investigating some obscene phone calls and letters that their neighbor, Dottie Hinkle, has been receiving. Another warning. (laughs) The next few minutes have a lot of adult language. So, but it's, you need to hear it in order for the plot to make sense. So, you know, just like earmuffs, but just in case you're listening at work or maybe you got your kids in the car or something, <laughs> bit, bit of a warning. Beverly is shocked that anyone would harass poor, lonely, divorced Dottie Hinkle. The detectives show Eugene and Beverly the note, and then it's kind of like a ransom style note, like each letter of the threat is cut out from a different source. Uh, the note says, I'll get you pussy face. Pussy face is such a burn. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I think pussies are fantastic, magical things, but calling someone pussy face is a, I like it. It's a burn. I'm going to try to bring it back. I mean, you also called poor, lowly, divorced Dottie Hinkle. That's Uh, a direct lift from the script. That is not my opinion on Dottie Hinkle. Oh, I agreed. It was funny to me. I was like, wow, burn. (laughs) Poor, lonely, divorced. Dottie Hagel. <laughs> Beverly is totally shocked, clutching her pearls. She has never even said the P word. Beverly wishes the world could be softer, you know, prettier, like the birds seeing outside. It's a very Snow White moment. Chip's ride is here, and we meet his friends, Bertie and Scotty. Scotty is actively looking at pornography as the whole family comes outside. Wow. Also here is Carl, Misty's crush. He's here to take her to school. They go to the same college. Birdie gives Misty a Pee Wee Herman doll for Misty to sell at the flea market. 
everyone is leaving, and Beverly teases that the cops should arrest Scotty for not wearing his seatbelt. The detectives laugh her off. Total June Cleaver. Which gave me pause to be like, do young people know who June Cleaver are? Or who <laughs> Joan Cleaver is? Joan Cleaver are? Joan Cleaver are? Me <laughs> no think good science? I'm trying my best here, Brandon. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Don't I'm not apologize. making fun of you. Do we think young people know who June Cleaver is? No. If you ask an average, like, I hate saying like a boomer, a Gen Zer, they would not know who Jen, June Cleaver is. I wouldn't is. think so either. So, like, the mover, the movie calls, uses the term Beaver Cleaver. And so I was like, what the fuck is even the mom's name? I had to Google that it was June, and I'm the oldest person here. So if I had to struggle <laughs> to look up the name, I was like, shit, I don't know if people know who June Cleaver is. I know. Uh, June, Wally, Beaver. I think those are the characters. And the dad. I, the dad. <laughs> Mr. Father Cleaver. Cleaver. <laughs> Mr. Makes more sense. Reverend Dr. Cleaver. <laughs> Don't bring Reverend Doctors into this. The very reverends. <laughs> the right reverend. Oh, there it is. Cleaver's dad. I don't know. The beeve. I gotta get my giggles out, because this next section is gonna be tough for me. Once everyone is gone, Beverly rushes to her bedroom, where she quickly makes a call. Very excited, she makes a phone call. The screen splits, and we quickly learn who Beverly is talking to. I am not talented enough to sum up the scene. As such, Brandon and I are going to read this straight from the script. Brandon is going to be Beverly, and I'll and I'm going to be Dottie Hinkle. Are you ready, Brandon? Yeah. Dottie Hank Dottie Hinkle answers the phone. Hello. Is this the cocksucker residence? God damn you! Stop calling here. Is this four two one five pussy way? You bitch. Now let me check the zip code. Two, one, two, fuck you. The police are tracing this call at this very minute. Well, Dottie Hinkle, then why aren't they here, huh, fuckface? <laughs> uh, Beverly hangs up and immediately calls her right back. Dottie Hinkle answers the phone. Didn't I just say fuck you? I beg your pardon? Who is this? Mrs. Wilson from the telephone company. I understand you're having troubles with an obscene phone caller. Yes, I am. I'm sorry, Mrs. Wilson, but this is driving me crazy. I've I've had my number changed twice already. I'm a divorced woman. Please help me. <laughs> well, what exactly does this sick individual say to you? I can't use the words out loud. I I don't use bad language. Oh, well, I I know it's difficult, but we need to know the exact words. I'll try. Cocksucker. That's what she calls me. Listen to your fussy mouth, you fucking whore. God damn you. Motherfucker. Fuck sucker. The utter delight that Beverly takes during this scene is almost adorable. Like, she's having a fantastic, fantastic time. Did you ever prank phone call people? No, first of all, 
I get the giggles. Like I'm a, I'm not a great person. <laughs> like I'm going to blow this the whole story. Like I'm going to giggle. Number one. Number two, my mom, because this might be weird. We might cut this when my mom, because my mom was a single mom <laughs> and she had three kids alone at home. My mom would like, was really diligent about checking the phone log when she got home, like the portable phone you could go through and like see what calls were made. And mom mm-hmm, would always mm-hmm. check that. And if she found a number, she's like, who the fuck is this? Why are you talking to them <laughs> on my phone? <laughs> uh, I respect so, no. <laughs> Did I feel like you guys definitely made prank phone calls. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I've talked about this on the podcast before, but I definitely used to make prank phone calls with my friends in middle school. I love it. We would take the school directory and just choose numbers out at random. And then this is when three-way was a big thing. So this is like 1997. Hopefully the statute of limitations out uh, or off by now or whatever the fuck. But it was 97, 98, around that time. So about seventh grade for me. And it would be three people on the line. One friend would call my... two friends and so then each person then the other two people then had one line open so what we would do is call random numbers and then click back over onto one line and be really quiet like don't say anything so the people the gag would be if the people picked up the phone at the same time which happened only once the entire time we did this (laughs) and this um, is really thought out like you guys really thought about this yeah, it was so funny. We called random people one time, and they we clicked over at the same time. Most times, the joke would be, like, someone would click over, and a phone is ringing, and they'd be like, hello? Hello? And then just hang up, and nothing happens of it. But one time, the two people picked up at the same time, and they're like, hello? And the other person was like, hello? And they were like, hello? And they just kept going for a few minutes, like, you called me? And that went back and forth for quite a long time until we laughed and hung up. Of course, we used like star six, seven, of so you course. couldn't find our numbers, but we <laughs> laughed so hard at that. See, I would blow it. I would giggle and it would all be shot to shit. I, I can't be dependent on. Bro, you got to put the mute on. Patricia, how do you not know how to crank phone call people? <laughs> I need to be better. I'll work on it. Okay. Uh, Beverly's terrible fucking neighbor, Mrs. Ackerman, lets herself into Beverly's home... And follows the noise to Beverly's bedroom, where Beverly hangs up just before Mrs. Ackerman walks in to this adult woman's bedroom. (laughs) Beverly isn't mad, only mentioning how bad she feels for Dottie Hinkle. Brandon, I love you so much. You're like a brother to me. If you just walked into your house and then you walked into my closed-door bedroom, we're having words. (laughs) (laughs) it's a boundary violation well you've you've never given me a key to your home when you lived without me (laughs) however when we did live together i would just walk into your room maybe not closed door i would not i would not it's different if we live in the same home but if you are a neighbor and you just walk into my house no go fuck yourself mrs ackerman in the next scene we see Dottie hinkle out gardening Beverly drives by in her blue station wagon, and the two ladies fake smile and wave at each other. Beverly has a flashback, and we see the reason why Beverly is harassing Dottie. It's because Dottie pulled a fried green tomatoes on Bev and stole the parking spot Beverly was trying to get at the grocery. So this is all over Dottie taking a parking spot that Beverly wanted. 
Girl, this made me laugh so hard. I was like, she is petty for that. Actually, both women are petty, but I, yeah. I, yeah. I was like, damn, Bev. Yeah, like they're both wrong. Like neither of this is appropriate, but at the same time, that would be frustrating. I mean, yeah, I wouldn't. I mean, this is a um, a prank she's been continuing for a long time. I mean, the cops are investigating it. Furthermore, it's a prank she's pulling on two fronts. She's sending the letters and the calls. So that's a lot of work. Beverly's committed. When the flashback ends, Beverly physically shakes the bad memory off and glues her big happy smile back on. At school, while waiting to meet with Chip's teacher, Mr. Stubbins, Beverly runs into other parents, Betty and Ralph. I fucking hate Betty and Ralph. They are insufferable from the second they enter this film until the second they leave. I hate them. Yeah, bro. And I... I testament to those actors speaking of the actors playing roles mink stole plays Dottie Hinkle, yes. and yeah. she is in a lot of john waters movies right she mink stole is an original uh dreamlander so like she started making short films with with john waters and divine in like 1966 Damn. like she's with them been with them since the beginning um, Beverly is much better at smiling and nodding to Betty and Ralph than I would ever be, but she's saved quickly when it's her turn to meet with Mr. Stubbins. The homeroom teacher is greatly concerned about Chip's obsession with horror movies, and Beverly laughs it off like his grades are fine, but Mr. Stubbins is like, are there problems at home? I think maybe Chip needs therapy. <laughs> and <laughs> you straight up see Beverly snap, like, in her face, She's immediately like, well, that's that then. (laughs) (laughs) In her defense, that teacher sucks. Mr. Stubbins sucks. Here's kind of the part. Spoiler, every person that Beverly kills sort of sucks. And I'm sort of like, like, I'm not shrugging. You shouldn't murder people. But all these people suck. Yeah, but they, again, not condoning what Beverly does in Serial Mom, the satire. It's fucking wild. It's <laughs> it is fucking wild. Um, as Mr. Stubbins walks to his car in the parking lot, we see Beverly run Mr. Stubbins down with her blue station wagon. One student witnesses Beverly reverse and run over Stubbins again. While some would be upset, Beverly just puts on her sunglasses and takes the car to the car wash. This is why women get away with crimes more frequently than men. Once the violent crime is committed, Beverly immediately takes the car, a.k.a. the weapon, to the car wash. Smart thinking. Good job, Beverly. I mean, don't. Murder's bad, but smart. I don't necessarily know if going into a school parking lot and running over a teacher in broad daylight is the smartest thing. Bev no, that was that was yeah, that was an act of rage. Yeah, she was she was very angry. Uh, crime of passion is what some people might call it. <laughs> Not the smartest, especially nowadays. I feel like schools have cameras fucking everywhere. Don't commit a crime at a school; you will get caught. <laughs> you speak from experience. Is that where you've gone for several months from the podcast? <laughs> Maybe I don't think so, but we'll see. Were you? <laughs> Reverse 21 Jump Streeting, trying to sell drugs to teenagers. 
I do have a reoccurring dream where I do have to, like, go to high school. Like, oh, that Algebra 2 credit didn't go through after all. You got to go to high school and get your get your, college, <laughs> get your high school diploma. But I can't, like, just, like, go to a GED. I have to, like, go back to my physical high school <laughs> as a very old woman and go to class with children in order to get a credit. It happens all the time. I hate it. It makes me mad uh, every time I have that dream. You need to stop watching Never Been Kissed, bro. I've never seen Never Been Kissed. What? Stop this podcast. John Wilders will come back to it. No, I'm kidding. You know, I'm not... I, I haven't really celebrated late 90s aughts. Like, I haven't really celebrated Drew Barrymore's back catalog. I just watched Charlie Angels with you last time I was last time I was visiting you. Wait, that was the first time you ever watched Charlie's Angels? Yeah. That's why we watched both of them. I mean, I... I thought we were just having a good time. I didn't realize it was homework for you. No, I think you were like, well, we're going to have to do this now. So I told you this, and you immediately maybe watched both Drew Barrymore and Charlie's Angels, which were not bad. This sounds about right. Yeah. I love Back it. at it home, right. Chip and his friends are watching the horror movie classic Bloodfest. Again, Scotty is openly looking at a pornography magazine. Group consumption of pornography is not something I'm into. Like, if I'm, we're chilling watching a movie, and you pull out pornography that you just leisurely start perusing, that's going to put me off a little bit. Maybe I'm square. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't mean to laugh, because it is very off-putting. But I'll just rip. I'm going to pull it out next time we're hanging out. Especially my favorite part. Like, this is John Waters, right? So the pornography is like pornography from the 50s. It's very, very dated, older pornography. That's just funny to me. Like, where did Scotty get this vintage porn? <laughs> uh, Beverly interrupts with cookies before sending the kids home and telling Chip that he needs to focus more on studying right after they watch her favorite scene again. The family tucks in for a meatloaf dinner, each member weighing in on Misty's new beau, Carl, and his request for Missy to lose 10 pounds. Go fuck yourself, Carl. Yeah. The quiet dinner is interrupted by worst neighbor in the world, Rosemary Ackerman who tells the family that Mr. Stubbins has been found dead. The news interviews the eyewitness, Luann Hodges, but she is a known stoner, and she says all she knows is that was a blue station wagon. When Rosemary notes that Beverly has a blue station wagon, Beverly answers, I'm not that bad of a driver. I, when, I feel like Beverly and Kathleen Turner... She does a lot of body acting is what I'm trying to say. Like the way she sits and holds herself or like the faces she makes, this persona of like, geez, I'm not that bad of a driver is so cotton candy, like pretend. And then when she's murdering people, it's so authentic and aggressive and mean. It's really funny to me. Yeah. It's a great little juxtaposition between the acting. two of them. Good job. Also, can we really talk about Luann Hodges, who that is also going to be your alias because we'll get to it, but she made me laugh so much throughout this movie. And she did when I was a kid. Like, even as a kid, I was like, Luann Hodges is turnt. She's having a good time. What's up, Luann? <laughs> Known stoner. That's, that's you. Luann Hodges is you. I think, first of all, aggressive. Second of all, 
Maybe, yeah, maybe that was. Would me you in high not have been Luann Hodges in high school? With I don't think I was a known stoner in high school. Okay. I think that if you knew, you knew. What's up, finger guns? Um, yeah. But I don't think I was like a known stoner. But maybe, maybe that's delusion on my part. Uh, later on in bed, Beverly is reading a serial killer book that she is hiding inside a bird watching book. But as soon as the lights go out, Beverly is turned up and ready to fuck. <laughs> she and you- You're so gross. <laughs> she and Eugene have vocal and seemingly very fulfilling sex. Good for them. Yeah. I'm going to say this a couple times. Eugene and Beverly have a really nice relationship. Eugene is really supportive of Beverly, like, throughout the film. And that's that's nice. You don't see that all the time. No, it's very true. I agree with you. I thought they did a great, like, um, <laughs> casting. Because yeah, I, I only see that dude from Law & Order. Like, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. And I, if I'm remembering, I'm more of an SVU girl. But if I'm remembering District Attorney McCoy from Law & Order proper, he's, like, super stern, no fun at all. And Eugene Suffin is sort of like a teddy bear. (laughs) (laughs) It's Saturday morning. And the bird watching date that Beverly and Eugene are supposed to go on gets canceled. When asshole Ralph calls saying he has a dental emergency. Beverly pretends to be fine, but you can tell that she's irritated. The mood shifts again when Beverly finds Misty in the kitchen crying that she has been stood up by Carl. When she says she hates him and wishes he was dead, Beverly reminds Misty to not use words unless you mean them. Creepy. (laughs) Meanwhile, Beverly is looking outside where the cops are going through her trash. Eventually, they knock on the door... But this time is to talk about Mr. Stubbins and Beverly's blue station wagon. Eugene immediately defends Beverly, who brings up that Luann is a drug user. (laughs) (laughs) The teenagers all make jokes, but when the cops find a magazine with the P missing, Beverly points out that that magazine belongs to Rosemary Ackerman. I always recycle my magazines. (laughs) While singing Barry Manilow... Beverly is sorting her recycling. Looking out the window that Rosemary Ackerman is just throwing her trash away willy-nilly. Beverly picks up her murdering scissors, but instead decides to run out and meet with neighborhood trash collectors Gus and Sloppy. (laughs) Not Sloppy. That's a fucked up nickname, bro. Super fucked up. Like, I don't but think gr- it's... I can't think of a single occasion where Sloppy is a good nickname. <laughs> Unless Gus and Sloppy are two pit... Or, like, pit bulls or bulldog type dogs. Oh, that yeah, have. that's cute. Sure, sure. Good point. Uh, <laughs> dibs on getting two bulldogs named Gus and Sloppy. <laughs> uh, Beverly gives the... Gives Gus and Sloppy mini booze bottles. And all three discuss Rosemary not recycling and how awful that is. This is my favorite scene for a couple of reasons. Number one, my mom loves Barry Manilow. (laughs) Secondly, Gus, Sloppy, and Beverly seem pretty tight. Like, they have all enjoyed pocket Kahluas in the past. Like, this isn't the first time they've all gathered around. (laughs) Pocket Kahluas. When Beverly says she hates Rosemary Ackerman, both Sloppy and Gus agree. 
Then Sloppy says the line from this movie that I quote with great frequency. Someone ought to kill her. <laughs> uh, to which, thank you for allowing me to say that line. Oh yeah, I get, I'm I'm a giving god. Did I do it justice? Should I do it again? Yeah, I liked it a lot. the The best part of that line is someone ought to kill her, but he's really <laughs> been thinking about it, and he feels like he's in a safe environment where he can express his thought. Which is true because then Beverly immediately answers that for the environment. Someone just might. She basically admits to Gus and Sloppy that she has plans to kill Mrs. Allen. <laughs> Mostly because she doesn't recycle, which I'm not saying is a good reason to kill somebody. <laughs> but they all share this opinion for sure. Yeah, Gus and Sloppy are some uh, eco-terrorists. I kind of appreciate it. Peeking in on Mrs. Ackerman, Beverly finds Rosemary and Dottie Hinkle enjoying a beer together. Beverly compliments Rosemary's dried pussy willows. <laughs> Dottie immediately recognizes the voice before Beverly smashes Mrs. Ackerman's Fabergé egg, blaming it on Dottie. As Dottie is shocked and screaming like, "That's it's you, it's you, it's you, Beverly like ushers Mrs. Ackerman out the door to take her to the flea market so she can find a replacement. When I was a kid, I was really confused about what a Fabergé egg was. And <laughs> I was like, Mom, what's a Fabergé egg? And let me tell you how that question led to like a four hour long lecture for my mom about Fabergé, specifically Fabergé eggs. Wow, I had no idea the Sioux was such a wealth of knowledge. <laughs> but she's so fancy. What is a Fabergé egg? Is it like a company that designs well it's franklin mint which i also am not sure what is it's a whole <laughs> sure thing, what bro. it is franklin mint i think and i could be wrong listeners if you know please correct us franklin mint is the producer of the fabergé the fabergé is a style of art that is like represented on eggs or like egg-shaped things or other it's fancy it's rich people shit it's like the okay. czars of Russia used to collect Fabergé eggs. Okay, okay. Sweet. Thank you for enlightening <laughs> me, bro. Listen, talk to my mom. She would love to inform you further on this topic. That's going to be a new uh, <laughs> a new uh, segment on the podcast, just calling Sue up to ask her random questions. <laughs> she would love it. I don't know if this is too much of a sidetrack, and I don't know if my timing coincides exactly, but I can also tell you that around this time... My mom got into painting and carving emu eggs. Oh. She had a friend that had an emu farm. Mom would then take the eggs and, like, decorate them and sell them. One of my mother's many side hustles. Do I remember this? I feel like I should know this. This was California, so this was when I was, like, little, little. Oh, okay. That, that explains it. I remember that one friend she had where we worked that Iris Festival thing, and we mm -hmm. were, were we valets, which is a terrible decision. I can't drive sticks. I don't know how that I got that job. We 100% were not valets. We were just telling people where to park. Oh. <laughs> your mom was like, you two are idiots. So <laughs> here's She's the like, one job you can't mess up. My mother has a dear friend who has a big, beautiful estate, and 
she hosts an event there and Brandon and I, so my, my mom was like okay dummy one and two go stand <laughs> at the end of the driveway and point at people that's all you have to do <laughs> and we're like on it meanwhile i think there were several points where we were in a car listening to the yeah. radio because yeah. i remember um what was that song it was like wind it up or something like that we were pretty old so we probably <laughs> we were very beavis and butthead at that moment this is definitely a be- yeah we were not children this was like in college <laughs> Eugene is working on Ralph's teeth while his wife Betty is constantly henpecking and interfering. The appointment is further interrupted because the detectives show up at Eugene's office. They ask if Beverly likes to read, as they have found several true crime books with scary titles in the Suffin's trash. Eugene denies it and sends the cops on their way. At the flea market, while Rosemary is off looking for the looking for her Fabergé egg, she finds one, but it's chipped. So she's like, I'm not going to pay full price for a chipped Fabergé egg. Nice try. Yeah. Uh, in retribution for this, she switches price tags and buys a very expensive fire poker for only $3. Back at Misty's stand, Beverly stashes the poker for Rosemary. Beverly also sees misty's crush carl he's walking around the field he's walking around the flea market cuddled up with a different girl the aforementioned tracy lord tracy lord is beautiful and when she pouts to carl that she wants the egg he buys it for her let me tell you how tchotchke's like this i hate this shit like this has no purpose (laughs) you buy a faberge egg and you just put it on a shelf and it's it sits there until you die i hate that i don't have any interest in that kind of crap yeah, everything in a Patricia house has a function, bitch. I can't stand it. Like, I'm okay with art, but I don't know. I draw the line at 3D things, I guess. <laughs> Your eyes can't handle it. <laughs> right. My brain is already so overstimulated, it's like, easy, buddy. We're doing <laughs> our best. I also move, like, every six months, and everything. So I'm like, everything I bring into my home, I'm going to need to take out of it. So, oh. Uh, Beverly takes the fire poker that Rosemary just bought and stalks Carl, following him into the men's room. Beverly thinks the stalls are empty, but one creepy guy sees her before running out. After which, Beverly stabs Carl with the fire poker, fully removing his liver as it gets stuck on the end of the poker. Gross. She then flushes Carl's dead face in the urinal. The grossest part of this for me. Don't put me in the urinal. That's not where I want to die. <laughs> have you ever seen a urinal in real life? I have seen them in real life, sure. And they Slut. always stink. Uh, Beverly shows back up at the stand, just in time to cover as screams ring out. Misty goes to investigate, while Rosemary tells Beverly that she has some poo on her shoe. But we all know that's not Pooh on her shoe. It's Carl on her shoe. Gross. Carl's dead body is discovered, and the same detectives happen to be there investigating. And they see Misty's terrified reaction. When Beverly is like, Misty, you got your wish. Why are you upset? (laughs) Rosemary finds her fire poker covered in gore. Yikes. (laughs) Another bad place to commit a crime is at, like, a big public market. Beverly is not giving fucks, dude. She's <laughs> doing things very brazenly. It's wild. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, it is shocking. She's like, all right, I'm going to kill this motherfucker. I don't care who's around. They'll get it too. In the bathroom, which is like, ev- like that's the worst. Pl- like, everybody's going to be in the bathroom. That's a terrible place to put a body. Don't do that. Yeah. Back at home, Eugene is searching for any clues about Beverly's secret interest, and he finds a treasure pot. A bunch of photos and letters. There's even a, an autograph photo from murderer Richard Speck. But the the gem in the collection is an is a tape cassette uh, from serial killer Ted Bundy. Wow. Fun fact: the voice on the tape is actually John Waters, <laughs> which because he usually has a cameo in his movies, and I like that his cameo in this movie is pretending to be Ted Bundy. That seems fair. <laughs> Eugene is shocked. Then, even more upset when the radio announces Carl's murder at the flea market. Misty puts shit together and shows up at the video store where Chip works, worried and serious that their mom might be a murderer. The family gathers around the table for dinner, and everyone is suspicious except Beverly. We cut to, we cut to scenes of the detectives talking to Rosemary and Dottie, who both think Beverly did it. Rosemary talks about the bloody gore on the poker, and Dottie talks about the pussy willows. <laughs> Back at the dinner table, Chip brings up that Scotty thinks Beverly is the killer. <laughs> Beverly answers that Scotty is nosy, <laughs> then stands <laughs> up and leaves the table. <laughs> at Scotty's house, he is, of course, watching porn. <gasps> We see Beverly spying on Betty and Ralph, who are eating full roasted chickens. I hate this scene because of the chewing noises. It's so gross. I know our audio audio quality on this podcast is shit, but listening to them moistly rip apart that chicken and the close up, I was like, "This is disgusting." It reminded me of like the scene in Gremlins when they're eating chicken. Yes, yes, I I did not like it. I did not like it. Upstairs, Betty is trying to get sexy before Wheel of Fortune comes on, but Ralph is still downstairs eating. Waiting in the closet with her stabbing scissors is Beverly, who quickly kills Betty with a stab to the gut. The cops and the Suffins are at Scotty's. And when they hear screaming, they bust into his room, but it's just Scotty furiously masturbating. (laughs) Relatable. (laughs) Ralph comes to check on Betty but Beverly chucks the scissors at him just barely missing him when Ralph runs outside to get help Betty pushes a window AC unit crushing Ralph gnarly the family comes home relieved you know Scotty was fine how could they ever think that Beverly was a murderer they're even more relieved when Beverly meets them at home with a big bowl of strawberries for dessert the Sutphins head to church the next morning, with at least ten cop cars behind them. That shit's wild. The detectives want to arrest her, but they are waiting for fingerprint results still. In the car on the way to church, the radio announces the murders of Betty and Ralph. It also announces that Beverly is the prime suspect. Beverly just laughs at this when Eugene is like, you know, honey, like if you're feeling weird or like if this is menopause, you can tell me. 
but she just laughs like no one is getting through to Beverly. She thinks this is silly. Church is full of whispers. The only people who return Beverly's greetings are her friends Gus and Sloppy. There is also a (laughs) reporter there who asks Beverly if it's true that she's Serial Mom. Chip is giddy over the nickname. Church starts, but everything is tense. The reporter and Misty flirt before the detectives get confirmation that it was Beverly's fingerprint. Inside the church, chaos erupts when Beverly sneezes. (laughs) The church riot gives Chip, Birdie, and Beverly enough time to escape the police in Scotty's car. Birdie explains that everyone knows. Beverly asks if she needs a lawyer, and Chip tells her she needs an agent. (laughs) Damn, Chip, that's weird. I think, so first of all, this is Matthew Lillard's first movie. I don't know if we said that earlier. This is Matthew Lillard's first movie. And I think after Beverly, Chip has the most lines. Like, Chip is a pretty big, especially like in this last chunk of the movie, Chip has a lot of parts in this. And I just, I would like to again praise Matthew Lillard. He does a really good job. Especially for his first movie, I can't imagine. You're shocking me right now that this is his first movie. Because I feel like maybe I saw this after Scream. Maybe I didn't. Because I felt like these were very similar characters. But I mean, sure. he kind of looks like the type of dude who would love horror movies and be yeah. really weird. Yeah, for sure. Relatable. The first week of shooting, Matthew Lillard noticed that Kathleen Turner knew everybody on set, knew everybody's names. And he was like, wow. How did you know everybody's names? And Kathleen Turner was like, I memorized the call sheet, babe. That's day one. <laughs> And I was like, yes, Kathleen Turner, teach the children. (laughs) But honestly. Eugene and Misty pursue, as do the police. But Chip, Bertie, and Beverly get away. They go to the video store, where Beverly can hide in a back room. They open the video store, and there's Miss Jensen. Right there. The second the doors open, she's there to return Ghost Dad. Because she loves Bill Cosby, which is a funny joke today. Uh, dude, I cackled at that part. I was like, wow. I was like, of course. Of course you do, Ms. Jensen. Uh, but she's an asshole, so Chip reminds her that she hasn't rewound the tapes. Back in the days, children, when you had a VHS tape that you rented from the video store, when you returned it, you needed to rewind it. If you didn't rewind it, you would get it like a fee. Or, I don't know. You were supposed to rewind it. It's common courtesy. Uh, but Miss Jensen doesn't fucking feel like record- or rewinding her tape. And she tells Chip that. that She's like, well, I don't really feel like rewinding them. So, whatever. Yeah, you're uh, the a old jerk. Bitty- <laughs> She's such a jerk. Uh, she leaves with her rental of Annie. And once she's gone, the teenagers go to check on Beverly. But find that Beverly is also gone. Worried that she's going to kill again, Chip and Birdie head to Miss Jensen's. We see her at home, making herself a sandwich out of roasted lamb, tucking in to watch Annie. (coughs) Beverly breaks into the kitchen. Sylvester the dog tries to warn Miss Jensen. But instead of, like, seeing why her dog's upset, she gets her dog to lick her feet. Which is also that was so super gross. gross to me. I hate it. I just hate it. It's the noises, I think, 
is what makes me so upset. I was like, ew, your dog licks your toes. If mine licks my hands too long, I'm like, stop. I don't like licking, period. I don't want, like, do you know what my dog does with that tongue? Don't put that on my face. Wow. You just shame Bernie on this national podcast. How dare you do that to my best friend? I love her. Don't say, don't say it. The teenagers show up and are trying to get into the house. But Scotty is also there spying on what's happening. All three see Beverly approach with a knife from behind. But Beverly changes her mind and goes back into the kitchen and picks up the leg of lamb and decides that she is going to beat Mrs. Jensen to death, which she does, all while Annie is loudly singing Tomorrow in the background. Even while she's killing Miss Jensen, Beverly is singing along with Annie. It's catchy. I do like Annie. I don't like Annie. I don't like musicals about kids. But I <laughs> can tell you fun fact. Um, it cost production $60,000 to use Tomorrow from Annie, which is really expensive. Really? Yeah. I wonder why they decided that. Uh, um, according to John Waters, it's because... I guess when you want to use a song, you have to tell them where in your story you want to use that song. And whoever owns the rights to Tomorrow from the Broadway musical Annie objected to him using that song while murdering a person on screen. So they're like, well, we'll (laughs) let you use it, but it's going to cost you $60,000. Well worth it, because it's the perfect song. It is really good. Also, to kill a bitch with a leg of lamb is wild to me like you gotta be really angry to beat a bitch with a leg of lamb and you don't know this man this woman from adam and all you know about this bitch is that she doesn't rewind her tapes and you and she was rude to her son she called her son a son of a psycho that was oh that's true that's true she did kind of go in on chip okay fair enough but what i'm saying is beverly don't fuck with beverly because you just don't know what's gonna make her upset Yeah, Bev was not in the mood. Chip and Birdie don't see Beverly commit the crime, but Scotty does. Beverly grabs the knife again and pursues Scotty, leaving Birdie and Chip to discover Miss Jensen's dead body. Beverly on foot chasing down Scotty in her church dress is great, and it makes me super, super happy. On foot, Chip and Birdie run into Eugene and Misty, who all witness Beverly pursuing Scotty in the van, so they follow after her. Consequently, the cops follow after Eugene and Misty. Scotty runs into traffic and has to abandon his car, and he runs to hide inside a metal bar called Hammerjacks. Hammerjacks is a, at the time, I'm not sure if it's still true, but it's like a Baltimore institution. It's a super popular metal bar. Oh, sweet. Beverly also goes into Hammerjacks delighted when everyone there is super excited to see Serial Mom. The band playing on stage is performing under the movie fake name Camel Lips, which is a fantastic name for a band. This song's a bop, too. (laughs) In real life, they're called L7 and are still together rocking out 30 years later, which I love. That's so fun. Camel Lips. (laughs) Beverly could not stand out more here. But the rowdy crowd provide a lot of cover, keeping both the cops and her family away from her. 
Eventually, Beverly catches up with Scotty, and after dropping a light on him, she takes a lighter and a can of spray of hairspray and torch Scotty on fire. It's fucked up. The crowd is hyped, but Misty and Eugene are horrified. The police immediately arrest Beverly, who is just, you know, bopping and enjoying the concert. Uh, yeah. While being let you out mean after she murdered somebody, after she murdered a child who hypothetically she's known for a very long time, um, but she's had it with him for sure. <laughs> he is he annoying. Is nosy. Yeah, I don't like Scotty. Look at your porn at home. Um, as she has let out in cuffs, the crowd chants "Serial Mom," which is fun. Uh, court or cutscene courthouse five months later. We see Beverly happily singing along on the prison bus, while Chip has gone full Hollywood, constantly working to get a show off the ground of the story. Meanwhile, Hollywood. Miss- <laughs> Hollywood. Uh, meanwhile, Misty is fucking the reporter, who has written a full paperback book on Beverly that the family is selling along with t-shirts. We love to see it. Enterprising. We do. <laughs> The prosecutor starts the trial talking about all his quote-unquote evidence, but Beverly is studying the jury. She gets one juror on on her side by helping him get rid of a booger. (laughs) Great scene. Then then she tells her lawyer that juror number eight is is wearing white shoes after Labor Day. To Beverly, this is grounds for the juror to be dismissed. (laughs) <laughs> when the lawyer is like Beverly Suffin is insane obviously Beverly stands up and makes a motion to fire her attorney and defend herself which is 100% legal in the United States please never do that despite a warning from the judge he lets her do it Beverly then enters a plea of not guilty this is also classic serial killer shit Ted Bundy famously defended himself. Serial killer Charles Ng did the fire the lawyer trick like 10 times. Charles Ng is the most expensive trial in California history. More expensive than OJ, more expensive than the Menendez brothers. Wow. So prosecution calls their first witness. It's Dottie Hinkle. Dottie comes in ready. She looks cute and she's ready to put Beverly away like Dottie's had it. But Beverly plays her like a fiddle, immediately reducing Dottie to a stupid drunk. (laughs) So you lied. (laughs) So you lied. Is that what you're saying, Dottie? That's so funny. I love it. I love watching people get mad. Dottie erupts and is found in contempt of court as she gets dragged out of the courtroom cursing and screaming. Like... Uh, Dottie versus Beverly. Beverly wins. She got you, Dottie. <laughs> Just put nah. this whole thing behind you. Beverly winks at Eugene, but Eugene is obviously frightened. <laughs> like, he's very scared, but he's trying to be supportive at the same time. So while Misty is outside selling t-shirts and books, Chip is on the phone booking appearances. He is shopping a TV show with Suzanne Summers. Uh, interested in playing Beverly. That would be a good get, Suzanne Summers. Yeah, and for Beverly. <laughs> Everybody wins. Uh, it's time for Brandon's favorite, Luann Hodges. She's coming up to testify. Bro, I cackled at this scene. What made you laugh about it, Brandon? 
just her laughing. <laughs> I was like, this is Patricia on trial. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. The lawyer keeps like trying to ask questions and Luann is just totally in the middle of the giggle fits. She has nothing to contribute. Like it was a bad idea putting her on the stand. That was a bad call. Next to testify is the detective who testifies about the killer books he found in Beverly's trash. Beverly then counters with a graphic porn sloppy and Gus found in the detective's trash. The detective erupts, mad and embarrassed, with Beverly summing it up, saying, You shouldn't judge people based on what they read. For the record, I have like 15 true crime slash occult spooky shit books right now that I can see right now from where I'm sitting. (laughs) Next to testify is Rosemary. But Beverly is ready to flip this shit. She says, Rosemary, um, didn't you kill Carl after he bought the Fabergé egg you wanted? Additionally, wasn't it Rosemary's magazine where the letters were missing? And it was Rosemary Scissors who killed Ralph and Betty? Those are all important facts. But the fact that turns the courtroom against Rosemary is when Beverly is like, hey, Rosemary, um, do you recycle? And the courtroom stills and rosemary's like i can't i don't have space in my kitchen and the whole courtroom is like i appreciate next the prosecutor tries to show image of burnt up scotty but everyone but no one is paying attention because suzanne summers just walked into the courtroom to like observe (laughs) last to testify is marvin pickles The creep from the men's room. Jesus. Luckily, all it takes for Beverly to flip Mr. Pickles are a few upskirt flashes before he totally changes his testimony. Committed perjury over that puss, baby. Beverly's doing something right. First of all, number one, she has on tights. Number one. Number two, hypothetically, she has on underwear under those tights. He's not seeing anything. But just like the possibility that he might see something was enough for him to change his testimony. (laughs) with that the prosecution rests beverly moves that nothing has been proved so the defense also rests the courtroom bursts into applause outside the courtroom suzanne summers is giving interviews at closing the prosecutor equates beverly to many other killers in her closing beverly is basically like come on (laughs) The cops framed me. My friends betrayed me. I couldn't have done this. I didn't do this. Come on. Two days later, the jury is back. Number eight is still wearing white shoes. But the good news is the the jury returns with a not guilty verdict. Not even like an acquittal. A straight up not guilty. They don't think Beverly murdered anyone, which is impressive. Um, And everybody is happy. People are cheering and stuff. Everyone except the Sutphins, who are all terrified. In the hallway, Beverly is surrounded by press, cheering her on. But Beverly is distracted by juror number eight and her fucking white shoes, so she follows her to the payphones. There, Beverly tells the juror that you cannot wear white shoes after Labor Day. But the jury says, no, 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 fashion's changed. It's okay now. 
Beverly says, no, it's not. And she beats the <laughs> shit out of juror number eight. Yeah, juror number eight. You should know, ho. You should know. Suzanne Summers shows up to take pictures with Beverly for the press just as the juror's dead body is found, leaving a smiling Beverly as Font appears on the screen. Beverly Sutphin refused to cooperate with the making of this film. <laughs> Again, remember, not real. <laughs> but I wanted yeah. to include it since it was included in the movie. <laughs> and with that, Serial Mom ends with tons of potential for additional Serial Mom movies or television shows. Come on, world. Give us what we want. <laughs> and with that, that's the end of Serial Mom. I think it really, Serial Mom is one of the last movies that Kathleen Turner starred in. So I do always kind of equate it with like, oh, that was kind of the end of Kathleen Turner. But that's... That sucks to think that because she yeah. does great in this movie. Yeah, she's really good. And she's good in all the roles. Like, she's good as the June Cleaver. She's good as the killer. She's really physical. Like, all of the attacks... Like, never mind the chase with Scotty, which is a fucking marathon. But in all of uh, her murders, she's very physical. Like, no. Love you, Bev. I am so happy to celebrate Mother's Day with this episode. Shout out to all the mothers out there. Hope you have. Hope you had a great Mother's Day. Uh, shout out to everyone where Mother's Day is hard. Sorry, you know, you're doing great. Do something that makes you happy. Thank you all for tuning in. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or embarrassing confessions, please send us an email at thewaybackrecap at gmail.com. That's thewaybackrecap at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at thewaybackrecappod. If you'd like to support the show or listen to bonus content, exclusive episodes, visit our Patreon page. Our original cover art is by Laura Strobish. Uh, remember, wherever you listen to podcasts, follow or subscribe to the Wayback Recap. If you enjoy yourself, please rate and review the show, but if that's too much... We totally get it. Tell a friend. Preferably a responsible friend who will rate and review the show. And join us next time. I'm Brandon. And I'm Patricia. And on behalf of the Wayback Recap, take, take care, care of each, each other, y'all. y'all.